Who is the Lord? What does lordship mean? And when did he become Lord of your life? My goal this morning is to help us to understand that Jesus is both our Lord and Savior and to live in the joy and fulfillment of what it means to walk under the lordship and rulership of Jesus Christ in our life. I want to start by just sharing just a little piece of my own personal testimony. I was saved at the age of eight years old at a vacation Bible school, the first time I ever heard the name Jesus Christ. I understood that he died for me, and uh, I surrendered my life to him. He saved me. He made me a newborn of his family. Now, does that mean that from that moment on that I was an angel? That I just was such a good boy that there's no sin in my life anymore? Hardly. Uh, I was a good boy on the outside, but I knew what I was like on the inside, and I wrestled with sin. And uh, when, I, when the Spirit convicted me of my sin, even as an eight-year-old and, and a little later, I confessed it. I, I admitted I was a sinner. And then I asked Jesus into my heart again and again and again, which was silly. Didn't need to do that. He was already there. So it wasn't until I was 15 years old that I began to understand the spiritual struggle that I was in. I was discovering that Jesus was my Savior and my Lord, and in those seven intervening years, through faithful teachers in my Sunday school uh, of the church, where I I later came to pastor for 13 years out on the Mount Baker Highway, uh, they trained me in understanding what this meant to make Jesus my Lord. And I grew spiritually. I started changing into the new creation that God had declared me to be. 2 Corinthians 5.17 was one of the first verses I I learned as a young man. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God. And then I was learning how to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. We just looked at that two weeks ago, didn't we, in our wonderful study in 2 Peter. So what does growth imply? It implies we haven't arrived yet. God has more for us to become in him. We're conforming. We're in process of change. Now, you've probably seen this chart before you It says three tenses of salvation up there on the top, and it fits so well as a basis for where we're going today. Our justification happened when Jesus Christ saved us from the penalty of sin. We were declared righteous in Christ. He he gave us his righteousness, and then we experience sanctification, freedom from the present power of sin in our life as we yield ourselves to his lordship. And someday, in the near future, we trust, we will be forever glorified in his presence, free forever from the presence of sin. How we look forward to that day. So, here's the problem. We rejoice in the truth of of our past salvation, that we have been saved from the power of sin. 
and we anticipate the hope of the future of being glorified and present with Christ in heaven, but we tend to live today not under the power that he has provided for us to live in. We, we think we can do this all in our own power. <clears throat> so, we know this, my friends, that there is a radical, life-altering nowism to the gospel. Jesus' lordship and salvation come as a single package when we are saved because we have an undivided Christ. Now, I understand how our experience can sometimes lead us, prompt us to the idea that salvation and lordship are two separate decisions that we make in our life. Once we're saved, Jesus is our Lord and then our, our, our Savior, and then we can... We can ask him to be our Lord sometime in the future, right? When we get serious about our faith. Where is that in the Bible? There are not two separate decisions, my friends. Lordship is not an optional decision. Salvation is far more than just getting your fire insurance from hell and then living like you want to. <clears throat> Nor is salvation a two-faced proposition just as Jesus Christ himself is indivisible. I like what A.W. A. Tozer said, the Lord will not divide his offices. You cannot believe on a half Christ. We take him for what he is, the anointed Savior and Lord, who is King of kings and Lord of all lords. Understanding his titles is so key to this whole issue because they define his function, his character. So let's, let's define these words. In the Greek, the word savior is soter, which means rescuer, deliverer, and from that we get soterios or salvation. Then in the Old Testament, the word for savior is yasha. Its verbal root means to bring freedom to deliver to make victorious. And look whose name arises from that. Yeshua, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Deliverer, our Victor. And then when we get to uh, Lordship, the Greek word is kurios. Someone who has power, authority, and right of ownership. In the New Testament, this word occurs 780 times. In the Old Testament, <coughs> the word used is Yahweh. Familiar name? Comes from the Hebrew verb hayah, which means to be. <coughs> this is the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush, isn't it? When Moses said, who shall I say to the Israelites uh, that sent me to deliver you? And he says, tell them, I am that I am. I am the eternally self-existent God, uh, the I am that exists before all and over all. And the end of Revelation, we find that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is no one before me. There is no one after me. I am that I am. The other name that is used often in uh, the defining Lord is Adonai, which means Sovereign, master, ruler, 
owner. So, is there any question as to the implications of these titles for our life? Perhaps an illustration might help. You're walking down a country road, and you see this sign warning about this bull. If you think you can run across this pasture in 10 seconds, don't, because the bull can do it in nine. (laughs) Now, you take that as a challenge. You're not afraid. You are fast. So you climb over the fence, and you get in that pasture, and you start walking toward this creature, and he looks up, he sees you, he snorts, and he charges. Game on. You turn around, and you start running towards that fence, but sadly, your body gets ahead of your feet, and you stumble and fall. And there you are on the ground, about to be trampled and gored by this huge monster when suddenly someone appears with strong arms, picks you up, takes you over the fence, puts you over the fence, but before he can get over, the bull gets him, gores him. He happens to be the rancher, and he willingly shed his blood for you. He put himself between you and certain death. He became your soter, your deliverer, by his choice, not yours. But before his life flighted away, you sorrowfully admit to your guilt in this whole situation. You trespassed, and he had to pay the price. Now, I'll do a Jeremy here. Shall I end the story there? (laughs) Are you saved? The answer is yes. He saved you. He put you out of harm's way, and made you safe. You repented. He saw that. You are saved. But is that all there is? Is that all there is? So in deep gratitude, you turn around, and you, in repentance and sorrow, you, you, you admit your guilt. You understand, in your gratitude, that you need to do something here, you, you tell him, I will tend the ranch while you're gone, while you're recovering, as he recovers. So you understand you're not your own anymore, my friend. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of someone that surrendered their life for you. So the verse says, so glorify God in your body. So as the, uh, before the rancher is, uh, is taken away, He gives you his ranch management manual. And he says, you said you're going to tend my ranch. Thank you. Tend to all my sheep. Tend to all my cattle. I don't know when I'm returning, but be faithful. You have a whole new relationship with this person that you never knew before. Serving him, uh, motivated by your love. And to do any less, my friends, is to cheapen the sacrifice that he made for you. Christ, this man now became your master, your owner, your boss, and you became his ranch hand or his slave. The apostles did not preach a cheap grace gospel, my friends, where he didn't call people, or he didn't save people with no call to follow him. James Montgomery Boyce says this is a common defect in times of prosperity. When it's culturally safe to follow Jesus and say you're a Christian, as it is 
or was in America. Today, our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world know what it means to follow Jesus, know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and surrender their lives, possibly even unto death. And thousands and thousands are doing that every year because they will not bow to another God. So, I ask, should we not also call newborn believers to live for the one who died for them? To let Jesus rule. After all, it's built into his very name. So let's unpack the controversy here. Admittedly, my illustration is is inadequate because there is no earthly equivalent in any story you can tell to what Jesus did for us. And some might even say that my illustration sounds like a works-based salvation, saying that Jesus can be your savior without you becoming his slave, his doulos. Slavery is so yesterday, right? It's so harsh, it's so culturally offensive. Jesus is my savior and friend, not my slave master. Hmm. Well, let's go back 2,000 years. Do you think the Greeks and the Romans knew what kurios meant? Yes, they did. Kurios meant a sovereign ruler to whom obedience was demanded. And the Roman rulers did not tolerate any competition for those who would want to serve another god. And many first century Christians and beyond gave their lives because they would not call Caesar Lord or any other Lord. If he wasn't their Lord, they could bow to any, anyone else and still say they're saved, right? Jesus was their own one and only. The Christians of the early church would be puzzled by anyone saying that Jesus is their Savior without him also not being their Lord. In recent decades, the controversy has come to be known as the Lordship Salvation Controversy. And I'm going to be very brief here. Dispensational theologians disagreed on where faith and repentance fit into the gospel message. Are they good works? One group accuses the other of being legalists, mixing in good works with the message of salvation. The other says that without works, how can you say you're saved? So this controversy led to several books being written as if they were broadsides being fired at each other, trying to blow the other person's opinion out of the water. So the beauty and simplicity of the gospel message got caught in the crossfire. Now, I won't name names for all the people that are involved in these two sides. There are many good theologians whose names you would recognize on both sides. I'll only name one in a a moment. Some are in heaven already enjoying fellowship together, and I'm sure... Neither one is saying to the other, I told you so. (laughs) Not in heaven. So reformers have always emphasized that good works are the righteous acts of those of true believers produced by the Holy Spirit's enabling and gifting as evidence of salvation all for God's glory. 
Now we know that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no doubt there. But if there's no evidence of salvation at all, are they truly saved? Or have they truly trusted in Jesus alone? And James asks us that question a couple times, James 2.17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. Dead. <clears throat> the faith that God gives to bring us new life cannot die, my friends. And since or, or it becomes stale and unproductive sometimes, especially when we live as carnal Christians, and that's why we have the epistles teaching us how to live under Christ's lordship. I love this quote from uh, Spurgeon. The proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ. What does that imply? Lordship. Is a change of heart. If the man does not have, live differently than he did before, his repentance needs to be repented of. And his conversion is a fiction. <clears throat> I want to tell you just a brief illustration of how important it is for us to understand this principle in our life. I served as an elder in a church in, in New York back in the 80s. And uh, our pastor bought us this book by John MacArthur, The Gospel According to Jesus, written in 1988. And he had us read it as an elder board. And we had some very good discussions about it. But a topic that we hadn't really discussed that much before. And... Uh, he was, he was a, a strong believer in the lordship of, uh, of Christ in our life. And sadly, this man was later caught uh, in a sin, which he tried to explain away. Now, he and I were good friends. Uh, I was very supportive of him. I had even been part of uh, his, his calling there on the search committee. But when I, as an elder, had to confront him, he denied his culpability, blaming it on his cultural background and the circumstances in which he had said these things. Now, he was from another culture, but that was no excuse, my friends. So he denied, and his failure to accept his sin showed me, and it shows us how diligent we all must be at all the time to live under the Lordship of Christ as faithful followers and conforming to his character in our lives and avoiding sin at every level. And it's not just for pastors and elders to do that. It's for every one of us because we all live in the context of a world that needs to see the difference that Jesus makes in our life. He preached this well. But his failure divided a church of three to four hundred souls. Now, although we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, free from any uh, legalism, there are moral laws that still guide our lives. Romans 8 2 For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Jesus gave us some new covenant teaching, didn't he? John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And years later, John would write a second letter in verses 4 through 6 and say almost the same thing. It's the same law we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. 
And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Our lifestyle demonstrates that principle, that law of love in our life. John MacArthur has summarized the issue very well in his book. There are no human works in the saving act. But God's work of salvation, God's work of salvation includes a change of intent, will, desire, and attitude that inevitably produces the fruit of the Spirit. The very essence of God's saving work is the transformation of the will, resulting in a love for God. Salvation thus establishes the root that will surely produce the fruit. Well stated, John. And then in our own statement of faith, we have these these words. We believe and teach that eternal salvation from sin, death, and hell is the free gift of God, received by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, who has made the full payment for our sins through his atoning death on the cross. The blessings of this great salvation are made free to sinners by the gospel, and the only appropriate response by sinners is immediate submission to God in repentance and faith. The inherent total depravity of sinners, however, is displayed in their ongoing voluntary rejection of God and the gospel. Therefore, God's free gift of salvation is not based upon any merit or initiating work on the part of the sinner, nor is it based upon God's anticipation of what a sinner might do by his own will. Rather, it's based solely upon the sovereign grace and mercy of God to save his elect, giving not only the gift of salvation, but also the means to receive it. This fully eliminates any boast in man and fully establishes forever the glory of God alone and the salvation of every justified sinner from beginning to end. Now, if I can just add just a a statement of opinion here. I think that these kind of controversies arise when zeal to preserve the gospel's integrity replaces good Bible study and exegesis. Sometimes personal beliefs and opinions get so calcified that they fail to listen and learn from others and to listen to the Holy Spirit's conviction in their own life. Once they decide something, they they don't want to change. It's too embarrassing. And so confuse and complicate a message that should be easy enough for children to understand and accept. So let's turn our hearts now and minds toward a number of undisputable confirmations from Scripture regarding Jesus' dual status as Savior and Lord of a believer. I've got, got about a dozen quickies here. <clears throat> Wish I could go dive into each one. But here's the first one. The first truth is that God demands exclusive rule. This is that great one-sided battle of Yahweh against Baal on Mount Carmel, where Elijah <clears throat> makes it very clear to the uh, Israelites, either follow Yahweh or don't. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. 1 Kings 18. 
I think the fire that came down from heaven kind of persuaded the Israelites as to who is God and who to follow. And the prophets of Baal didn't fare too well after that. Secondly, there can be no Savior without him also being Lord. And Isaiah brings us this powerful passage, 43, 11, and 12, confirms Yahweh's dual status here. I, I am the Lord, Yahweh, which means I am that I am. Notice how many times he repeats his own name in that statement. And besides me, there is no Yesha, Yeshua. <clears throat> I declared and saved, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. In other words, you're not, you're not. Our role is to be his witnesses of his saving lordship to show the world what a difference he makes. Third, <clears throat> Jesus is more than a savior, Isaiah 49, 26. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. So Jesus is more than Israel's Messiah and redeemer and everyone will know someday that Jesus is Lord of all. We come to the New Testament, and we find that even as a baby, Jesus is called Savior and Lord. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So even the angels celebrated Jesus' rightful rule, his right to, and authority to rule over the lives of those that he redeemed on the cross to become our Soter and our Kyrios. Then there's the illustration of, of uh, us being sheep in, in God's pasture. Those who claim Jesus as their shepherd must be his following sheep, John 10. And in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And the more we know his voice, by hearing that voice through the Holy Spirit's conviction and leading us to understand his word, the more we want to follow this wonderful Savior that we have, this great shepherd. Six, Jesus is no less than Lord in Christ. And here we are at Pentecost, where Peter uh, and his disciples have just left a room where they've all been filled with the Spirit, and there are thousands and thousands of Jews rushing to the temple area where they are, almost swept there by this wind that's sweeping through the streets of Jerusalem. And who is that wind? It's the Spirit of God. And Peter is standing up there, and in boldness, filled with the Holy Spirit, he tells these Jews who had demanded Jesus' death the dual role of Jesus in their life. He says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And men debate today about declaring Jesus to be what God has already declared him to be. Number seven, believers identified with Christ's death are actuated, activated by his life within. There's this beautiful passage in Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I that lives, but it's Christ that lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith 
in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the old me came to a very decisive end on June 19, 1957, when I was saved from sin and saved from myself. I instantly became positionally dead to myself and my own ambitions and alive unto Christ who was now my life to live for him. My past and my future were changed and I was empowered to live in the present under his lordship. Number eight, every act of faith is God's work in a believer. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is one of those classic passages uh, dealing with this issue. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. That grace-faith combination we call salvation. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. The word there in the Greek is poema. We are his created, creative poem that he has uh, prepared in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So my friends, when you're quoting this passage, don't leave verse 10 off because it flows together in a, in a whole phrase of, of teaching. So I ask you, is faith a work? It's not a trick question. Yes, but whose work is it? It's not ours. It's not ours. Because even the good works that follow salvation are not ours to boast about. They were formed by God before we were ever created, that we should walk in them. So when he saves us, he gives us a new disposition, a new determination, a new desire to make faith practical in our lives, to make it work. And the Apostle Paul told the Philippians, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is serious business, my friends. Serious business. Let it show. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So never confuse working for your salvation with working out your salvation. Two different realms here. Number nine, Jesus is purifying and training his slaves for godly living. And Paul uses a, a present situation there in their culture of a master-slave relationship uh, to begin with. The bond, bond servants, that's slaves, douloi, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us for what? For action, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his what? For his own possession. Does that not speak of lordship? ownership, who are zealous for good works. Boy, that, that passage needs a whole sermon, I'll tell you. <laughs> All right, number 10. True believers must subdue the flesh by submitting to the Christ's lordship. 
Uh, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Romans 8, 7. And verse 13 says, It's by the Spirit that we put to death the, the deeds of the body and live. Now, Paul confronted this fleshly mindset very often in his travels, especially in the city of Corinth, where he deals with this issue probably more than anything. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So these Christians were just babies, flopping around in their own dirt, thinking that they could glorify God by that, still live in the past, pleasures. So the flesh is something that we all still have and still wrestle with, right? I don't see anybody in here in this room that has a glorified body yet. We all live in the flesh. We have to deal with that. Paul himself admitted to his own battle in this area, didn't he? Uh, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God, it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we engage this battle in the Spirit's power, not in our own fleshly power. Number 11, salvation comes through belief in the Lord Jesus when Paul and Silas were beaten up and thrown into that Philippian jail, their joyous praises in the night the jailhouse rocked. Some of you got that. <laughs> Led the jailer to ask in desperation, what must I do to be saved? And the response was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, do you think that Philippian jailer knew what Lord meant? Did he have a Lord over him? Absolutely. Did that man have a Lord over him? Yes. So Paul is saying, you now have a new Lord in your life. Live for him. And then number 12. Confession of Jesus as Lord is concurrent with belief that he's our risen Savior. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 8 9. Great verse. And then finally, just to recap from 2 Peter, Peter emphasizes Jesus' dual role in saving and keeping his own. <clears throat> he says, for in this way, and verse 10 says, practicing godliness, there you will be richly provided for an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he emphasizes that three more times. So how do we respond to all this? First of all, repentance is so key in our life. It means a change of mind, a change of direction. Uh, sanctification is that daily process of conformity to Christ's holiness. And remember, the perfection awaits us in heaven, so don't get discouraged when sin, you, sin overtakes you sometimes. Uh, just repent, uh, agree with God, and then stop running with the bulls. Don't climb that fence. Reaffirm Jesus' lordship over everything you are and have. And think about all the areas in which he wants to reign in your life. Your heart, your mind, your marriage, 
your friends, your, your, friends, your finances, your time, your cell phone. Oh, that one is so hard for me. He wants rulership over that. Possessions, work, service for his kingdom. See, you, uh, your life is now hid in with, hidden with him in God, and his kingdom is, your life is his kingdom to rule. And when he's ruling, you are not, and that's good. Why would you ever want to go back to the delusional hopes of building your own little kingdom of one? Third, read scripture through the lens of his lordship. As I've been studying this over the past several weeks, I have seen it more and more. If you're watching for this truth, you see his lordship all through scripture. It's not a subject to be denied in your life. It will transform you. Jesus' parables, does he call people to follow him? Yes, and they know what he means. And some say, oh, it's too much, I'm going back. And think of all the instructions in the, in the New Testament, all the instructions of the apostles to tell us how to live. Is lordship not an important issue for us? Fourth, reject carnality by renewing the Spirit's power. See, living for the flesh as a second-class believer was never an approved status for confessing believers. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Colossians 3, 5. And then the final one here is probably the most important for us. Examine your standing with God. And this verse is so important. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Have a heart check up here today, folks. Because if you're not in the faith, Jesus is not living in you and your life is bound for hell no matter how many good works you do. So repent, confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you will find that new life that we've been talking about. And then if you are a believer, saved by the blood of Christ, I ask you, has your life changed since you said yes to Jesus? Are you living for him? Is he your Lord, Master, and King? Are you yielded? I'll end with this quote from Paul Tripp. For the believer, obedience is not a pain, but a joy. And each act of obedience celebrates the grace that motivates and empowers it. Friends, there is no greater peace, strength, victory, and joy rather than knowing that Jesus Christ is both our Lord and Savior. Nothing less. Nothing less. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we confess you right now, right here as Lord and Savior, our Deliverer, our Ruler, our King, our Sovereign. And instead of eternity in hell, you have promised heaven with you. And we confess that sometimes, Lord, we're more excited about escaping this, this old world of sin, this present earth that's falling apart, than being excited about trusting in your power to preach the gospel, to live out the gospel in our life, making a difference in the lives that you are calling to yourself. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us, cleanse us, make us clean vessels in your hands to use as you will as Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.